Hi, I'm Sam Smeltzer, and I'm an HR healer, and you're listening to the Heart of It podcast, where we chat about what's at the heart and matters most in the world of HR, the people. In this episode, we are continuing our very special book club series, and um, yeah, you're going to hop right in with our next conversation on the book, The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. So I'm going to stop chit-chatting, enjoy the convo, let's do this. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to our second week in our podcast, a book club. I'm so pumped, and I am joined here with Liza and Karen and Ryan, and Ben was unable to be with us this week, but we're continuing our conversations about the infinite game, and I think that Ryan has shared that there is a particular chapter that has resonated strongly with him, so Ryan, I'm just going to pass over the um what do you call it the talking stick yes. pass the talking stick to ryan yep. <laughs> so he can share with us um kind of how this was vibing with him this week thanks Sam. go for it ryan so chapter five was all about uh, the responsibility of business and it says in parentheses revised and uh this really sp- speaks to me because of my past um research and investigation into a concept called conscious capitalism And if you're not familiar with the concept of conscious capitalism, it's predicated on a book by uh, John Mackey and Raj Sisodia of the same title, Conscious Capitalism, Unleashing the Spirit of Business. And uh, that just spoke to my heart because I believe that they have really articulated very well what I think is a longing that many of us have that work uh, must be more human centered in in how it's uh, functionally carried out. And so Simon does an outstanding job in really articulating how uh, the demise of what was birthed as original capitalism um, has been created through philosophies perpetuated by a guy named Milton Freeman in the 1970s, uh, whereby he espoused that, um, according to his theory, the sole purpose of business is to make money and money that belongs to shareholders. And um, so back to conscious capitalism and how that compares and contrasts, conscious capitalism is predicated on four major principles. One is higher purpose. And so that higher purpose should really appeal to uh, the ideology that's similar to the infinite game, not a finite game, but an infinite game, something that is so lofty and visionary that you may never be able to achieve it, but it's a a good aim for your organization um, nonetheless because it elevates society, it elevates humanity, it elevates a number of things that makes life better for all of us. Um, The second uh, principle is stakeholder orientation. Notice I said stakeholder, not stockholder, not shareholder. And so that notion of a stakeholder orientation says, we will do no one thing in benefit of one stakeholder group to the detriment of another stakeholder group. So what we do is we recognize that those stakeholders are a part of a larger ecosystem and what we want to do has an impact on them and vice versa. And so obviously we want to be invested in their success as much as they're invested in our success. And so that whole ideology contrasts with what we view in terms of 
um, corrupted capitalism or abused capitalism, I think is uh, he had called it, or capitalism abuse, I think he even said. Um, capitalism abuse is the fact that we have now seen a shift in how capitalism is really articulated um, in society is really predicated on that sole purpose of enriching the shareholders, not the stakeholders. And it's all about um, producing money or revenue. And so this st stakeholder orientation really flies in the face of that ideology. In addition to that, conscious leadership is the third principle of conscious capitalism. And conscious leadership is uh, the idea of servant leadership. So it recognizes that the leaders are there and they are there for the purpose of equipping their followers with all the resources and support they need to be successful. And they carefully um, craft a culture. And so culture, conscious culture is the last of the four principles. And so conscious culture says, how do we want to interact with one another? How do we want to fight with one another? Um, how do we want our clients to see us? How do we want to interact with our community, our environment? Um, and so we hold those, all of those things in high regard. Whereas in contrast, it's all about what's going to produce the most revenue or the most profit. And so you can see that um, in so doing, that compromises all of those relationships because if there's a more expedient way that we can create profit whether it be downsize our workforce whether it be um, stop using this vendor and go to use that vendor whether it be dump chemicals and sludge into our environment if that's going to produce more profit we're going to do it and i think all of us have seen that experienced it i think if you lift your head for just a moment you can recognize it and i think that that's where we have i i feel or sense a collective longing for something so much better. And uh, so th this chapter really spoke to me um, because of my background and research in conscious capitalism. I think uh, Simon did an outstanding job of really articulating uh, what is capitalism abuse and why we find ourselves where we are today. Um, because it's, it's the people that are being enriched and um, self-aggrandized, if you will, they're the ones that are benefiting entirely on the backs of everyone else. And so because they are the leaders, they're the rule makers too. And do you think that those rule makers are going to stop that flow of money coming into them? Do you think that they're going to get out of their comfort zones? Of course not. So what we're really looking at is, uh, you know, discussions of a revolution as it relates to how we work today. And I'm excited about that. Yeah, and I loved at the end of chapter five when he talks about this shift to this infinite value, he calls out that basically this revised version of the responsibilities of the businesses that are involved, like talked about and, and recapping some of what you just shared, but number one is advancing a purpose and offering people a sense of belonging and a feeling that their lives and their work have value beyond the physical work. Number two, to protect people. I mean, I can't even tell you like, for me, that just sent, those words sent waves through my body, like to hear someone affirm that, cause I've been so passionate yes. about that. Like we do have to protect our people. And then to hear him just put that out there, that that is part of our responsibility. And on top of that, the last piece of generating profit, money is fuel for a business to remain viable so that it may continue to advance the first two priorities. That has been my view on money 
for eons and i can't tell you how many times it looks like i have like a weird i don't know third eye growing out of my head somewhere when i talk about it but i've always viewed making money was always to further the work and further the cause and further the resources and even when i've been building my business that's always what i've been after it's always like how can we have more money to let other people do their work and 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 come and be under the umbrella and 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 be part of that movement so it's just this as somebody who really struggled with the core business classes when I was pursuing my undergraduate degree to read a chapter like mm -hmm. this that talks about topics that I did not think that I was wise enough or intelligent enough to really kind of consider. It was this beautiful blend of all of my wor worlds kind of saying, no, like you do have a perspective that applies in this arena. And that, I think that's what has really kind of happened to me as I was reading that chapter. And Sam, um, one point that I, I think it's important to um, reflect on, or, or at least impacted me, um, is Simon's articulation of the fact that he has to be very guarded and protected when he talks about money in this way, because automatically people go to the polar opposite and say, oh, so you're saying money's not important. Oh, you're saying that money's no, not really the issue. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's not the sole purpose. It's a part of the purpose here. And it's like that three-legged stool. You know, you need each one of these legs in order to continue to exist. Otherwise, you know, we're doing it for no purpose. Um, so obviously one-legged stool doesn't work either. Yeah, I, would, that, I think that's what struck me about this chapter. So... Sam, I felt very similar to you. I, I've been feeling, um, so most of my work has been in the social service industry and public health, and I've been feeling and, and kind of experiencing these things, but didn't know how to put words or context to it. So this chapter, again, Simon Sinek has great examples, right? So for someone who I have not um, done a lot of research on conscious capitalism, this was really interesting, and it was a, I was able to put words and theory kind of behind that. But the, the piece I think that you just noted, Ryan, that's interesting, and he's said this before, is it doesn't have to be one way or the other, right? Like we have been, I feel like I have worked in industries where we've been almost socialized that it has to be about metrics or about performance, um, and it can't be too much about um, humans and, and trust, right? And so um, why can't it be a blend of both? And so I think one of the themes I'm finding in this is that there is a balance. The other thing that he speaks about, and this is the second time, um, is kind of the order, right? Like the order of how you present things and those priorities. And I had never really paid attention to that, but now kind of going back in my mind in how things have been presented, it's, it's very, I can now piece together like where the priority was, even if there is some human-centered conversation in that. If it's not at the top of that order um, and how you're presenting it, then um, then it really just kind of changes that whole atmosphere and that whole ecosystem. Um, and that really hit me in this chapter as well. Yeah, and Karen, like you, I really haven't done a whole lot of research into this, but I found this fascinating. And maybe I had a little bit more of a cynical way of reading through it, um, you know, and, and even Simon Sinek mentions even in the beginning of the book when the founders of uh, the Constitution wrote the Constitution, they were only writing the Constitution for, you know, people like themselves. 
but didn't realize it was going to take on such greater meaning. And my experience has made me very aware of uh, the inequities of capitalism and, and what Simon, Simon was talking about as sort of, you know, the, the good part of capitalism, which was everyone being able to participate and you, you got your gold watch at the end of your 50 years or whatever, um, really was only for a select few. And there um, were just a tremendous amount of people, it, you can just go throughout history, who were not included in that story. And to me, to read about Mr. Friedman's um, sort of, he almost gave permission to uh, widen the base of people who were excluded instead of saying that formerly, you know, everyone was included and it was opportunity for all, I would argue that hmm. that was not the case and that instead it simply was expanded to include more people. And so when more people feel the pain of it, uh, then, you know, and, and of course the whole thing with budgets and bonuses, it's just the wrong incentives all the way down the line. So I completely agree. I absolutely love, I mean, I've highlighted all over all over the place um, that how he is getting us to think differently instead of um, shareholders, contributors, you know, just the verbiage, just rethinking how mm -hmm. we think of our role. And if you just automatically start talking that way, then the people around you will start slowly to pick up on that. Um, but let's see where I did have some notes. The other part of this that I, and I, I hate to be such a skeptic about it, but we are also in a global economy and everything we do is global essentially. And we are in a unique position and we are very fortunate to be able to read Simon Sinek, to be able to have these ideas, to rethink business, uh, to challenge the way we do things and um, to contribute in the way that we can. But there are a lot of countries, a lot of economies, a lot of uh, businesses around the world who simply, that is, it's just not gonna fly. So how do you, now that we are doing business in general on a global scale, how do you work with this infinite mindset in, in the third world economies, in India, you know, in China? How do you do that? So there has to be a, a greater understanding, I think, of the people who you, you know you won't be able to uh, convince and you have to be strong enough in your own mindset to work with them knowing you're not going to convince them of how you operate it yeah so i i think your your last sentence what you just said that we have to be strong enough it, it like that is i think core to this right because when i read so much when i read this so much of what i'm thinking is it's really exciting, but it's gonna be really hard. So if it's hard just in your nucleus, like your own, just maybe your own business or where you work, 
um, or maybe the partners that your business works with. Yeah, I can't even imagine from a global perspective, right? But but I think what strikes me is it's so much about looking internally and saying, do you have the strength to know that you're not going to be able to change everyone's mind and you're going to hit roadblocks for the rest of your work career and, and your leadership life? And that has to be okay, right? So like when I read that, that's personally hard for me because, you know, what Liza, what you were saying is, yeah, I, I want to be able to work with everyone and see and help them see the benefits of what he's saying. The reality is that that's never going to happen. And so being okay with that and then having the strength to say, I can still, I can still contribute hugely to that. Right. I don't, I don't know if that's yeah. articulating it correctly. It's daunting. It's very daunting. Yeah. It, it's, it's an understanding that you may not actually see the final product. You may be yeah. just part of something that is going to take a much longer time. You know, I think about banking and how much banking occurs offshore. I think about a lot of the trading, international trading, and uh, how some of that would never occur here in the United States because our laws prohibit. But there are entire economies being traded offshore um, in ways that absolutely um, are horrible uh, to people. In other words, it, it's just banking on uh, the abject poverty. It's banking on slavery. It's banking on those things. And that is the way the world economy is. So mm -hmm. the challenge, again, of course, is to take this leadership role in whatever it is that you're doing each day, knowing that you're only going to start changing people's minds if you're fortunate, even for that. And, there, you know, there's such a psychological perspective here that I think is important to kind of pay homage to and understand is, you know, for so many thousands of years, we've been conditioned on this idea of you can have your cake, but, you know, you're not always going to be able to eat it, too. You know, we've always been pushed this false binary of it's this or it's that. And I think we are coming out of this binary age and moving into a tertiary age where it's almost more in recognition of things like supersymmetry. In a binary in computers, you know, it's all zeros and ones, right? Well, supersymmetry says that it can be both a zero and a one at the same time. And so the question of, well, do you want people or do you want profit? And the answer to that is yes, not one or the other, okay? Mm. And that's that tertiary notion of we're not talking about ors anymore. We're talking about ands. And, you know, that's represented in also in quantum physics in the double slit experiment. If you guys are familiar with that, um, the, a double slit experiment was done. It's a famous experiment. I would invite you guys to look it up. But basically what they did is with lasers show, shot particles um, through um, this uh, cut, cardboard cutout kind of thing on the wall. And what they expected when they did that, they had two slits in it, and they expected that the particles to exhibit on the back side of that wall in accordance to where they cut out the, um, the holes in the, um, in the object. And what they um, found out was uh, when they weren't looking at the experiment, that the um, 
the experiment demonstrated that what was hitting the walls were waves. And when they chose to look at what they were doing, that's when the particle or the wave collapsed into a particle function. And that's what exhibited on the back wall only through those slits. So consciousness has an impact in terms of how we view the world that has an impact on the most um, quantum level that interacts with the world around us. And so I think what we're, do, we're seeing and recognizing on a larger system and a larger level is we're recognizing that there's a wave function there that exists beyond our recognition. And so we're seeing that there are more alternatives and opportunities and an existence beyond what we ever recognized before. And that's where I think it coincides with this notion of how we work we are going to examine a whole new notion of how to work that we never really fathomed before because we couldn't see it. And now we're opening our minds up to seeing something well beyond what we've ever been conditioned to. And so if you're always focused on what you know, you can't uh, release your mind to open up to something new that you don't know. And so, and so from a psychological safety standpoint, some people feel threatened mm -hmm. by that. And so they're going to hold on to what they know with a death grip. And I think that goes back to making sure people are comfortable to fail, making sure people are comfortable to not know what's going on. And from a leadership standpoint, that's one of the biggest threats out there. Leaders can't, can't handle not knowing how to do something. And so that compromises their ego to such an extent that they're going to double down and create fear for everybody else. And it's going to get ugly and all, all that low vibration stuff. But here, I think that this is the golden opportunity that we're all looking for to really kind of step back and use as many possible analogies as possible to get people to shift their thinking modalities. I love that example. Thank you. Very well explained. Thank you. <laughs> the, um, literally like the other day, uh, a friend was talking to me and I don't remember the quote exactly, but the, he quoted basically the gist, this idea that all the limitations that we have in life are directly correlated to our, uh, our ability in language, like what language that we're equipped with. And basically we're all kind of functioning until we can create these bridges. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking from a global perspective, I think it is possible. And I believe that you have to believe and hope that it's possible that these things can happen, but it's a matter who is that person that's going to be the bridge. And, you know, I might touch the three of your lives and then you might touch uh, the equivalent of a dozen more. And like what she said, Liza, we may never see that end, but at some point there's someone who's going to have this unique opportunity in one of those global economies and is going to be able to say the perfect kind of language or analogy like Ryan is saying that bridges and then we have this small baby step mm -hmm. but I mean this entire book we keep hearing it's you know it's the infinite game we're just setting it up for things that hopefully will be there in the future because we want to protect our people and we believe in the cause and the vision so much um, which I just I think I think is present and I'm going to back up to chapter four because they, he starts chapter four talking about Sam Walton, mm -hmm. um, which I have a, it hits a soft spot for me because I started my career in retail and I think I'm just a retail manager at heart. I thought I was going to live and die and breathe retail and merchandising. Um, and the story of Sam 
uh, you know, I might be biased because of the name, but the story of Sam really, um, it hits a nerve with me every time I go into a Walmart because of what we view and think of Walmart now, except for a few exceptions and maybe some small town um, across the country that um, they all they have is that major retailer there, but we can make arguments about what that's done to that local economy. But regardless, that's not what Sam visioned when he started Walmart. And he had this incredible culture where they would do these cheers, things that other retailers have mimicked. And then looking at how when that legacy was carried on for another generation, it was basically destroyed and lost. Um, and I found fascinating how he started talking about the evolution of this C-suite and how we kind of just assume that all C-suites uh, executive officers are created equal. And as long as you get up there, then you are up for grabs for that top of the peak. And the top of the peak is the one that needs to sustain the vision. And him readjusting CEO to this concept of CVO of chief vision officer. I was like, that makes so much sense as mm -hmm. to what has been happening. And I found fascinating as he was dissecting just their public um, sp speeches of, of the dialogue they choose to use and focus on uh, that really notated how you could tell if they're finite or infinite uh, mindset. Um, so I found that just once again, it also came with a sadness because you are exposing the darkness that basically is all around in a lot of what we're seeing in, in, in corporate uh, America. But also, I don't know, there's just something about hearing Simon put it down in a book says like, I'm not the only one that believes that it can be different. Talking about that, you know, talking about, um, allowing the managers to be human, to be able to make mistakes and not to feel bad when, uh, or threatened in any way, you know, when you make a mistake, that does have to start, it, and it's very uncomfortable, but it has to start with us making mistakes um, and, and how we handle those mistakes. And, um, and then your staff gets a little bit more comfortable, obviously, with it. But um, I loved the way that Simon Sinek basically said that better in the infinite game is better than best. And I mean, that was just uh, right there. That's just something that you can start repeating. It's actionable right now today. You know, you can just start repeating that. Well, better is better than best. And uh, so that's, I just happen to, to love that with regard to um, the competition at the, at the management level um, and the idea that, um, and, and it would be up to the CVO, the chief visionary officer, to make sure that his team understands that they're, they're not in a pit scratching each other's eyes out that they are actually each one of them brings something to the table and each one of them is needed and and that really does come from the top down just that understanding and it's it's so rare i have to um this is one of those things that i think is just fascinating when i'm reading these books there's sometimes these unique opportunities where you can have a direct application in real life and 
I've been actively recruiting and hiring a new full-time employee that we've been envisioning what this looked like. And I'm not, this book have really opened my eyes to what that possibly could be. But as I was interviewing and she's asking me questions as we're getting to the final phase of her deciding if she wants to work with me just as much as me wanting to work with her, um, I found myself using the terminology, just as you were saying, Eliza, that you were highlighting all those different terms and just speaking that way. She was just like, wow, this is just like a, a breath of fresh air. Like, I just want to be like, she was instantly inspired. And I was like, wow, I'm like jacking Simon Sinek's words here as I'm talking, but it made me like elevated as a leader. And it's kind of like how powerful of a shift this is with me just using this in a 20 minute interview. Um, if I could really embrace this all the time and it become fluid. So it was just fascinating because when you said that about language, I was like, oh, I got to actually see it happen via Zoom, because that's how we're doing interviews nowadays. But um, but it was just, and she's all jazzed up. Like she mm -hmm. was, you know, this whole idea of this just cause and being able to articulate those words and and um, and talk about the future and talk about profit and the, and the views, just the way that he's laying out, um, gave me a different kind of language capability to communicate that vision. So it was interesting. His his examples are so functional. They're so appropriate, regardless of, you know, the it, it just across many different uh, businesses that I wonder if he knows that if he knew that writing the book that he was giving everybody little, little earworms, <laughs> little earworms. <laughs> Good. Um, Karen, did you have any um, spot in these 70 pages that that we haven't chatted about that you want to kind of shine light on? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I so that whole partnership with the CVO and the rest of the C-suite was interesting to me. Um, I I am trying to apply it. I read this section a couple of times and I tried to apply it to different um, times in my life, I, I actually really connected mostly with the trusting teams chapter. Um, I think it's it's mostly because, um, and I, I think I mentioned this in the first session. For me, you know, I'm I'm very much a people person, and I do really um, I connect to. I think that you can build a good team based on trust and the results will come. I do believe that, I've seen that. Um, and, you know, I, I think we talk we talk a lot about it. We talked about it um, at the last session too. This notion and this, um, again, I think we're conditioned that the soft spots in our humanity are seen as, as downsides in work. And how do we shift again? It's about shift and redefining the way that we work together um, and that that's that it's not bad right to, it's not bad to expect trust and honesty and real relationships from people that you work with um, because again i think it contributes to that just cause and being able to connect the dots for people i think that's for me it's really important and then again it, it connects back to to our human side um, which is why that chapter spoke to me and it made me think about 
so many times where I have remembered feeling like I could give a hundred percent of myself, Mm -hmm. but the trust and the lack of connection and the lack of trust and the lack of relationship is, was that barrier, right? So I was able to just tangibly think through so many examples. And the other thing that I thought about is, you know, there's a lot of words I think that leaders use to create an environment that seems trusting, but then really walking that walk and what does that look like? And I keep going back to the fact that this is daunting, but it's also really exciting, right? To me, this again, opened opened some doors and, and gave me permission to say, you can, um, you can open up a little bit more. You can expect or accept vulnerability um, and really create an environment where, where people feel psychologically safe. So, um, you know, I, I've also read Dare to Lead. I think it really contributes to this chapter's work. Um, and so those things go hand in hand. But this idea that vulnerability is bad or that those soft kind of um, emotional parts of work are bad, just redef- rethinking through that, um, that chapter really was just, that was really poignant for me this this week. Or- oh, I was just going to a- agree with you wholeheartedly. I loved the example of the oil rig. That was just everything we want to hear, you know, all wrapped up in one incredible example. Um, and, and then with regard to vulnerability and somehow being able to uh, convey the value of vulnerability, the end result, at least that I can, it would seem, is that once a, a crew member or some, your staff or, or your team were safe to be vulnerable with you and allow you to be vulnerable, then it immediately uh, translates to they feel safe to take responsibility. And so it, it would be nothing for a, a smooth team to have find something, you know, something goes wrong and somebody raises their hand, guys, that was me. I, I blew it on that one. I know that had to have made it hard on you. Let, let's and then move forward as if it were nothing because that's that's the way it is for all of us every day so being able to be vulnerable also means integrity and being able to take responsibility and ownership sorry and what's kind of interesting about this is to um to deny yourself um Basically, what we're seeing is antithetical to what it is to be human. To be human is to error, okay? And so when we create an environment where it's not okay to be human because we are going to error, what do you get in return? You get very inhumane environments. Let's talk, say it for what it is. And exactly what we're experiencing in many large organizations are very inhumane environments. You're not allowed to have that feeling. There's no crying in business. You're not allowed to feel that way. And so consequently, what do you do? You deny yourself. Okay. So how is that going to be beneficial to anyone, let alone the organization? But we don't think about it in those terms all too often. And again, that's some of the conditioning. So, you know, 
I, I think what we're experiencing is a denial of our humanness. And what we need to do, and this is where I'm concerned, like you, Karen, is what, what do we need to do to convince people? What do we need to help? Um, how can we help people see this, so to speak? I think it comes back to identifying the patterns of nature and man. And if we align ourselves to more of who we are as humans, that's going to enable a whole different mindset around how we work. So an example of that is we need to recognize and pay homage to that the immaterial precedes the material, that intent precedes action, that we are a part of a fractal universe. And what's good for the individual is likely good for the team, is likely good for the division, is likely good for the organization, for the community, for the society, for humanity. And it ripples on out. And so uh, I think we have to kind of look at it from a macro and a micro standpoint to really refashion what we want to do and how we want to approach this. Because I think that this kind of truth is something that resonates with most people in their hearts. So we need to put it in a way that they can understand it to take them to where we want them to be. Where are the incentives? How is how are the incentives structured? Well, that's a great question, Liza, because what we see exhibited in the corporate world are mm -hmm. um, extrinsic benefits. We don't have a whole lot of intrinsic benefits. And again, this is a psychological component that we've got to put on the table. And that's why I think psychology and HR are inextricable from one another. You need to have a recognition of both. Um, to truly be effective. So, you know, what are we uh, applauding and awarding, like you said, when our systems are designed entirely predicated on rewarding profit at any and all costs, that's what we're going to get. But it takes courageous organizations to say, you know what, there's a better way, there's a different way. An example of that, I have to go back to the book, Conscious Capitalism. A, a longitudinal study was done over a 10-year period of time measuring conscious capitalism organizations to that of the S&P 500 in terms of their profits and returns. So let me just ask you, how? I'll tell you that conscious capitalism organizations exceeded the profit uh, margin in comparison to the S&P 500 companies. But how? by how much? I want you to guess. <laughs> I'm 30, 30%. 30% says Liza. Higher. 60. Really? 60. Higher. Over 80. 99. Not even close. Really? The conscious, cap the conscious capitalism organizations outperformed the S&P 500 organizations in return of profits by 1,025%. So just when you think everyone's going to ask you to hold hands and sing Kumbaya, here's some hard results mm -hmm. for you. That's what I always tell people when I do the presentations on conscious capitalism is, you know, I've heard it all my career being in HR. Oh, that's soft stuff. That's nice. All oh, this, that, and the other. But what they're doing is they're cutting off their leg and they're saying, go perform when they deny the humanity of who we are. And so that's where I say double down on humanity. 
that's what's going to guide us. That's what's going to transform this world. I love reading this book because I feel like even just this is just week two and it's like uh, these sessions have been like pump you up sessions, like get ready to go out and do battle in the world. And um, and I have no doubt that we're going to keep hearing that we're, you know, over halfway done with the infinite game, which I can't believe that either. Um, and as you can see, uh, each section that we are reading is totally delivering powerhouse after powerhouse of impact to each of us differently getting the wheels turning um we're gonna go ahead and do our round robin to kind of give our closing thoughts mine's gonna be really simple there was this one liner that actually is in the middle of chapter five that um i man i think it just for me it sums up where we're at um and really inspires me to keep moving forward but it says where there is unbalance there is unrest and that is why we need to keep moving forward so um karen do you want to go next sure um i actually highlighted something on page 118 which i think for me was the theme of this week is the process of building trust takes takes risk and in reading this week's um, chapters, I really thought about how risk can seem scary, um, but it's also there's so much benefit, right, in the infinite down the road um, game. So it's about risk, but it's also it's exciting. Um, so on page 110, um, a sentence I highlighted was, it's the difference between physical safety and psychological safety. And the reason I only highlighted that term is because I think that that is a binary that we are currently experiencing, where the entire emphasis is on physical safety, but we have disregarded entirely the notion of psychological safety. So I have to go back and echo your statement on balance, because I think that this, is, this is an area that desperately needs it. Um, on page 106, uh, trust and vulnerability grow together and to betray one is to destroy both well good stuff well, thank you so much for joining us this week as we are recapping how simon senate continues to move us and we look forward to chatting with you again next week uh, as we dive through another 70 pages and then we'll pretty much be on the home stretch after that uh, and getting ready for our next book so have a great week and we'll talk to you next week podcast summer reading book club is brought to you by the heart center the heart center is offering an amazing disengagement detox virtual small group cohort coaching program meant to serve any hr practitioner that feels like they are disengaging from their work which isn't your fault it's because of the work that you do we don't have the skill sets to know how to protect ourselves and establish the boundaries that we need to not get slimed by all of the people work that we do. We charge in heartful, wanting to make a difference, knowing that we care and underestimate the impact that it has on us ultimately as people and professionals. The eight-week disengagement detox program will undo all of those toxins that you've absorbed into your system, as well as teach you the detox so that you can use it on an ongoing basis to stay resilient and passionate about your work. Learn more about the disengagement detox program at leadershipisart.com slash detox.